Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Coming up on The Science Revolution, Dr. Justin Frank submitted an amicus brief to the Supreme Court on Bush v. Gore and is talking about psychoanalytic and family dynamic perspective in that context. I weigh in on how the GOP is an organized gang of sociopaths. Meet the 14-year-old climate activist, Haven Coleman. She'll be discussing how youth climate activists are leading the push for climate action in the Democratic Party and why they believe voting for climate in 2020 is so critical. And in geeky science, why health care for all is a climate solution. Stay tuned. Well, over the course of a few years, Dr. Justin Frank, the psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, professor of psychiatry at George Washington University, a clinical professor of psychiatry in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science there, who also wrote books about George W. Bush and Barack Obama, you know, the, the psychological profile of them, and now Donald Trump. For some time, I've known that he had a deep insight into these people and, and has produced some just absolutely extraordinary and very, very readable books his most recent Trump on the couch, of course. But I did not realize that he participated in the 2000 lawsuit that happened before the U.S. Supreme Court that put George W. Bush into the White House, even though he lost the election by a half million votes. I had not realized that Dr. Frank had been a part of that. That lawsuit, of course, uh, one that was co-authored by Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, and John Roberts when they were just lawyers working for George Bush. But anyhow, he did. He filed a front of the court, an amicus brief with the court. And here he is, Dr. Justin Frank, MD, Twitter handle Justin Frank, MD. Dr. Frank, welcome back. Tell us Thank about you, your experience in 2000. Well, I was actually talking with a friend who's, I guess, pretty well known. He was a fellow father at, a, at the school where our kids went, Seth Waxman, who was then Solicitor General, oh, yeah. I think. He said that he had made a bet with some friends of his that the Supreme Court would not even take the case of Bush v. Gore and the Florida Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court would not take the case. And we were together the night they did take the case. We were at a party. I looked at him and I said, I feel that I hear jackboots marching down Pennsylvania Avenue, Munich in 1934. And he said, we talked, and he said, why don't I write an amicus brief? Because the original findings that led to desegregation was in Brown versus Board of Education. There was a psychologist who wrote a very defining brief. So why don't I write as a psychoanalyst about the danger of disenfranchisement and not having your vote count? So that's what led to my doing it. So I did it sent the brief in, and it was actually tacked on to another brief that was submitted by a much larger group, but it's basically there in the Supreme Court. And I took it out and started looking at it in the last couple of weeks, and I realized that it was a really important uh, document and uh, somewhat predictive in a way that's disturbing to me as in terms of what we're going through in this country right now. And so that's what I did. And I said that in the amicus brief, the danger is 
The reason it's important to write this as a psychoanalyst is that if people feel disenfranchised, like in Florida, it activates family trauma. It activates feeling of being a kid and not having a say in development. It activates a sense of insecurity. And one of the things that's important for growth and development and also for our society is for its citizens to feel secure in relation to the government and that the government is on their side and will protect them, and that it's very important for body politic, the political ego, to deal with the fact that the injury from Florida and the hanging chads is going to be transferred through generations if it's not addressed directly. It never was addressed directly, and as you just said in your beginning, that in fact Roberts and uh, Kavanaugh and now Barrett, all on the Supreme Court, were active in the side of Bush of taking that case. I'm just saying that what that leads to is it's important to know that you can vote, and there's a problem that we're having more now with disenfranchisement and also the attack on voting by mail that Trump has started. But there's also the feeling that even if you do vote, will your vote be counted? So it's important to have confidence in the system. And if you don't have a faith in the system, and I think some people lost faith. The people I know who are most anxious about what's happening now are people who really remember those hanging chads from 20 years ago. So on this program, I've talked many times about how my sense of things is that, at least my own personal experience, those moments in my life when I have felt genuine rage have always been moments when I felt like I had lost control, that somebody else had control over my life, and that produced that kind of rage response. I was telling my listeners yesterday, just in the last three days, Louise and I have had just three now random casual interactions with strangers where the strangers have just blown up. One was a road rage incident. One was, uh, you know, a person that Louise was telling her how to park her car uh, so that she wouldn't get a ticket, and the woman just went nuts and started screaming at us. It seems to me that the whole country feels like it's lost power and is experiencing rage. What do we do about this, both at the level of the country? Obviously, you know, we need to clean this act up so votes actually get counted. But how can we deal with it at the individual level as well so that we're not inflicting that the rage that comes out of those feelings of powerlessness on our loved ones or on random strangers? I think we have to take a step back and talk about powerlessness for one minute here, which is that one of the things that's important is the idea of containment, that if you don't feel safe with your aggression, if you don't feel contained, that the government is there to protect you, then when you start feeling powerless, you will also feel powerless to contain yourself and you won't be able to contain your own rage and your own aggression. Containment and being contained as a child helps a person, the child over time, internalize the capacity to contain his or her own emotions and feelings so you don't necessarily become dominated by them and and out of control. And I think that's what's happening when we have a government that is attacking containment. And in the amicus brief in 2000, it was about being able to rely on the judiciary if the executive is going to attack containment. But now we can't go to the judiciary, and that's what's different from 2000. They didn't protect us, but this brief was written hoping that they would, that the system, if you don't believe the system 
exists to protect you, and that if your vote is failing, your only appeal is to the judiciary. And if that doesn't work, then we're in big trouble. And that's what I think is threatened by what's just happened with Mitch McConnell and jamming this justice. Isn't the flip side of that where Proud Boys see themselves and, you know, all these white supremacist groups, they see their white privilege slipping away and they feel similarly out of control? Yes. In fact, the problem when there is disenfranchisement, that both groups of people will feel disenfranchised, that the white power groups and that Trump has appealed to the people who felt disenfranchised in 2016. And he talked about, you know, the swamp is ruining them and the coastal elites. I think both sides feel frightened and paranoid about each other. And it's really dangerous what's happening. Yeah, I'm totally with you, and I'm so hopeful that uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris can pull this I think he can help, but it's gonna be, he's going to have his work cut out for him. You bet. Dr. Justin Frank, his new book, of course, uh, Trump on the Couch. Justin Frank, MD, is his Twitter handle. Thank this you, sir. This is okay. the Tom Hartman Program. Great talking with you, Dr. Frank. Thanks so much for dropping by. Tuesday is Election Day. More people have now voted in Hawaii and Texas than in the entire 2016 election. Most states have laws that allow them to start counting the ballots that come in by mail before official election day. But there are a few states where Republicans have succeeded historically or recently in passing laws or rules that say you can't even open those ballots until election day, which means that it's going to take, you know, days, maybe even weeks to count all the ballots. This, of course, is part of their plan. But COVID infections now represent the third leading cause of death in America. This is a very contagious, very crippling, very deadly disease. And on top of that, there's a growing legion of people who call themselves long haulers. These are people who are suffering. Basically, the symptoms never went away. One of them said, every afternoon at four o'clock, I get hit by a truck again. Literally couldn't get out of bed for weeks and now can barely get out of bed. Screaming nerve pain, difficulty breathing, chronic fatigue, and that doesn't count the COVID survivors who have now permanent lung damage, heart damage, brain damage, kidney damage, have had strokes, have had heart attacks. These are the the most common side effect of COVID is not death. Yeah, that happens around 3% of the time. But the most common side effect are those things that I just described, heart attacks, strokes, and things like that. Very often people do die from them. You know, the latest estimate is that there's probably about 60 or 70,000 deaths in the United States in the last eight months that were not listed as COVID deaths because when the EMT showed up, the person was dead and they said, well, what are the symptoms? And well, you know, the left side of his body froze up and then he couldn't move and then he couldn't talk. And then, you know, an hour later he died. Or, you know, he grabbed his chest and was having all this pain and fell to the floor and died. Well, it turns out the stroke and the heart attack were actually caused by COVID. So facing this simple reality, every developed country in the world is encouraging social distancing and the use of masks to reduce the number of people who are injured, disabled, or killed by this disease. Every country, of course, except the United States of America. And now we've got this coronavirus. It is exploding through the American Midwest. And it's increasingly looking like the thing that spread it across the Midwest 
was that South Dakota biker convention where a half million bikers showed up in one small town in South Dakota. And the governor came out and said, hey, we don't need masks. I think Christy Noem is her name. No, we don't need masks. It's all good. Don't worry. And all the restaurants open and everybody. And after all the bikers left, you know, the, the town came down with COVID. And those bikers have COVID. And they carried it half a million people all over the country. This would have been illegal in pretty much any other state. In fact, the bikers and the Trump rallies are the only, quote, legal, large, maskless events that are going on in the United States. And Trump is like spreading this virus from coast to coast because he wants his ego massaged. He loves those rallies. This is his last chance to have rallies. He loves it when people tell him how much they love him. All those people yelling and screaming. It's what he's dreamed about his whole entire life. And, you know, in some bizarre way, he thinks it's going to help him win the election, too. You know, there are psychologists. In fact, uh, Dr. Justin Frank, a professor of psychiatry, he's a psychiatrist at Georgetown University, on this program have speculated that Trump might actually be intentionally exposing his followers to this deadly virus because deep down inside, he actually hates anybody who trusts him. There was a time in his life, probably when he was five, six, seven years old, according to his niece, Mary, and to Dr. Frank, there was a time in his life when, as a young child, he was very trusting. And then he discovered that he couldn't trust the people around him. He couldn't trust his father. He couldn't trust his mother. couldn't trust his siblings. He lived in a predatory family, a family where the patriarch, his father, Fred Trump, was a a high-functioning sociopath. And so now anybody who trusts him, he immediately assumes at some real deep unconscious level must be up to something. And so, you know, hey, infect them. This is how he treated all three of his wives, having affairs on all of them and, and you know, betraying repeatedly. I mean, we know of, you know, at least, what, 10 or 15 just on Melania, just in the, in the couple of years after she gave birth to their son. And what did Melania say? Well, I know who I married. I married him for the money. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear, right? But the point is that this is how Donald Trump behaves. You've, he's got several thousand people who've sued him for breaking business contracts. Uh, contracts are supposed to be your word written down so everybody is clear. Uh, Donald Trump's word doesn't mean anything. So maybe it's this like deep psychology thing that that's the reason why he's trying to the Trump death train, the Trump death tour. Why he's insisting on running this the way he is running it and discouraging people from wearing masks so they will get sick. You know, maybe it's that deep psychology. Or maybe it's just that he's lazy. He wants to spend all his time, as he has for the first three and a half years of his presidency, three and three quarters years now, he wants to spend all his time watching Fox News and playing golf and doesn't want to attend to the actual hard work of governing. And so, you know, Scott Atlas, the radiologist from Fox News who knows nothing about infectious diseases, comes along and says, well, just to go for herd immunity. Yeah, that worked really well with smallpox, didn't it? No, it didn't. How about measles? No, it didn't. How about polio? No, it didn't. In fact, no infectious disease in the history of humanity has ever been dealt with with herd immunity. 
Herd immunity is a phrase that the vaccine industry came up with decades ago to describe the threshold you have to hit a vaccination before you no longer have to worry about a disease being active. And for measles, for example, it's 94%. If your vaccination rate with measles goes below 94%, you you start having outbreaks. So God only knows what the herd immunity level is for COVID, particularly since people are getting it a second time. But here we go. And now you've got some political cynics saying that here's a third reason why Trump is trying to spread this virus as far and wide as he can. To hand Joe Biden a screaming, flaming disaster. It's like, you know, the old cliche of the teenagers who fill a bag with dog poop, set it on your front step and then light the bag on fire. I mean, that's that that's what Donald Trump is trying to give to Joe Biden when he comes into office. In fact, he went out of his way yesterday to say, you know, if Biden gets elected, he's going to listen to the scientists. Oh, my God. I mean, that's his indictment of Joe Biden. He's going to listen to the scientists. But more Americans have died from this disease than have died in all our wars since World War II combined. And any normal circumstances that would disqualify any normal politician, inciting people to kill others, that could even land most Americans in prison. So how do we deal with this? after the election truth and reconciliation commission do we go to uh, what you know the, the uh like the church committee or the pike committee in the house of representatives like we did after the nixon administration how do we deal with this because we have to deal with this we cannot afford to allow this to happen again It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Haven Coal 
Tillman is on the line with us, the co-founder and co-executive director of U.S. Youth Climate Strike. ClimatePower2020.org is the website. And Haven Ruthie, H-A-V-E-N-R-U-T-H-I-E, is Haven's Twitter handle. What are you up to? I, I understand that you're, in fact, I read this article about all the various things that you've been doing, including leading climate strikes and things like that. What brought you into climate activism and where are you focusing your efforts right now? So I started climate activism when I was 10. I realized that my favorite animal, the sloth, was going endangered because of deforestation and I wanted to stop that. But while researching about deforestation, I found how it correlated to climate change. And then I was like, oh my gosh, this is worse. And so I was just like, I got to fix this. I did the Climate Reality Project with uh, Al Gore since it came to Colorado that year. I got educated. I started doing presentations across the country to youth my age to educate them about climate change. Then I started doing rallies, speaking at marches, doing things. I kept getting bigger and bigger. The climate strike started and with Greta Thunberg and I was like, I want to do something in the U.S. So I founded U.S. Climate Strike. I was in connection with FFF the whole time. We made sure and we were able to, I think, for the second, like, United Climate Strike, we got 500,000 youth striking. Then I continued to strike after I left U.S. Youth Climate Strike. I striked for a full year every Friday at the Capitol or in Kansas or in Utah or I think once in New York. Right now, I'm working on trying to get filters to people in Colorado because of the air and water is really bad. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had the, the wildfires here in Oregon a while ago, and for a whole week we couldn't go outside. Yeah. It, was, it was not good. And, and this is all climate change. I mean, you know, it's like the, the chickens coming home to roost. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Haven Coleman, the 14-year-old climate activist at ClimatePower2020.org, the website, co-executive uh, director and co-founder of U.S. Youth Climate Strike. It seems to me, Haven, that young people are, for fairly obvious reasons, very, very concerned about the future of the climate, given how rapidly our environment is changing and the, and the extraordinary consequences that could have on civilization, on life, on species, on everything else. And also that maybe some of the 60s activists, the boomer generation, your grandparents' generation, I would say, probably, are fairly active. Are you finding ways to activate people in the middle, the people who are like, you know, 20 to 50? Or is that not even a focus of your attention? Are you trying to focus on on young people? What my focus is when I'm doing my activism is anybody who listens. Usually I find people who are in their, like, young adults or teenagers who are most open to listening. But also there are people in the middle. There's people that are older that do want to listen. If people are willing to engage, I'll talk to them. But it's the people that are just blatantly saying that I'm wrong and that, I should listen to them while they're yelling at me how I'm wrong, that I'm not going to waste my breath doing that because we don't have that much time. We have like five years till we can't stop the irreversible effect, like the worst part of climate change. Because climate change is already happening. We're seeing the effects of it right now. Just what people need to realize is we're not trying to stop climate change altogether, but the worst effects because it's going to get worse and we're not going to be able to adapt to it fast enough. And so anybody who's willing to listen, anybody who wants to engage and learn more on how to fix their actions and how to promote well-being of our planet, I will be talking to them, which is a wider range of people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Including Cory Gardner, one of the more high profile things you've been involved with, was giving a speech at a town hall that was uh, uh, 
being hosted by Cory Gardner, the Republican Colorado senator who uh, has received over a million dollars in campaign funding from the oil and gas industries. And, and uh, you gave an impassioned speech that, that just you know, brought some of the people in the audience to tears. Um, has Senator Gardner uh, re- responded? Did he get the message? Um, so at that time, I was actually crying myself because they, he blatantly and, and the people who were like in who were giving with giving the people who would ask like like giving them the microphone, they kept ignoring me. So I was so frustrated that they wouldn't listen to the only youth in the audience because it's at my generation's future that's on it. And he's one of the civil servants that are supposed to serve us, but he's not doing it. Uh, I have not heard anything back from him. I, he originally ran saying that he would help the climate crisis and be against oil and gas. And the, him getting a million dollars in funding from the oil and gas and getting and supporting it has just been ridiculous. And United, the Colorado has, is trying to kick him out of Senate, especially this election. Um, and even though Hickenlooper, who is the one, the other person running against, who used to be the former governor, he, he's not the best, and he does have issues, but he's better than Corey, who's done nothing and sit in office for years and years on end, just lying to us, and it's just ridiculous. So, no, I have yeah, not gotten an answer f- from him. It's interesting and, and unfortunate. Speaking to those people who may be teenagers or younger who are listening to this program or to people who have young people in their families or as friends that they would want to share this information with, how does a young person begin the process? What's the entry point? Is there, obviously you've started this group, tell us about that. We have about uh, you know a minute and a half here before we're going to have to hit a break. How do people find you? How do people get involved in what you're doing? What can young people do in their own local communities, particularly given the fact that you know a lot of schools aren't even meeting right now? Well, what young people can do right now is, since we are not having, we're having a pause because activism is, well, has been mostly physical actions, is I would suggest going to different groups right now that are in your community, like Sunrise, 350, Sierra Club, or POC and indigenous grassroots groups. If you have money, donate them. Donate it. If you want to, you can reach out to them, ask what you could be doing as a young person, saying, hey, I like your initiative. I'd love to help. And they'll give you things. They'll use your passions, your creativity, and they'll use it. You could use your artistic expression to help spread the word about climate change. If you're younger and not allowed to vote like I am, People can vote on behalf, use your ideas to influence their vote, because your voice is practically a vote, because you're convincing your parents, your friends, community around you on why it is important to vote for candidates that will be supporting climate change, that for the candidate that's actually wanting to put out policies to fight climate change. And sadly, I don't think this gets enough attention that climate change, the fate and future of our planet is on the ballot this year. And frankly, every two years. Haven Coleman, co-founder and co-executive director of the U.S. Youth Climate Strike, climatepower2020.org. Haven Ruthie is the Twitter handle. Haven, thanks so much for dropping by. Great talking with you. Nice meeting you. Nice to meet you, too. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Keep up the great work.
Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And I, yeah, I just I wanted to share this, this extraordinary story. We tend not to think that economies and healthcare and the environment are interlinked or interlocked. But in fact, they are. They all influence each other. And this remarkable study that was just published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, it's some work that was done by the University of California at Santa Barbara's Dr. Andy McDonald, found that when they went into rural Indonesia, Indonesia is a country that has still a fair amount of rainforest or of jungle, these exotic trees that are, you know, command quite a, a high price on the international markets, but are protected. I'm not sure if these are the specific species, but things like teak and mahogany, woods that, you know, 40, 50 years ago you would commonly find in high-end furniture and things. You just can't even find them anymore. Anyhow, what they found was that people in rural communities in Indonesia were going out into the forest or into the jungle and cutting down these protected trees and selling them into the black market, into the smuggler's market, in order to pay for health care. Right? You can't live if, you, you know, if you're sick and you don't have access to health care. Health care has become a core part of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, as much as shelter and food and, to some extent, transportation. And so what they did was they went into these rural areas and they opened free or super cheap health clinics in these areas to serve the people. Now, this was not with any idea about what the impact it might have on the environment. This was a purely health-based, altruistic effort to bring health care to people who didn't have access to it or only had spotty access to it. So they opened up these clinics, and what they found after a 10-year period that these health clinics had been running in these rural areas of Indonesia was that the logging, the deforestation, the illegal logging, these are national parks, protected areas, that people were going in and poaching trees, essentially, that the logging decreased by 70%. That equates, so the study says, that equates to more than $65 million worth of avoided carbon emissions, which is the climate and the not losing protected and endangered species as well all because they brought health care to these folks. I think it's just remarkable, and it's, it's worth noting, it's worth uh, sharing with people and telling your friends about. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.